Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Although the Russian Revolution of 1917 is usually thought of as a radical event that changed 20th century history, in her new book, Christina Heatherton argues that it was actually the Mexican Revolution. I'm quoting the first major revolutionary conflagration of the 20th century that produced conditions in which internationalist challenges to the new imperialism arose. Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution is published by the University of California Press, and it brings Christina Heatherton, Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights at Trinity College, Connecticut, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. Delighted to be here. You begin your book with the story of a KKK lynch mob in Charleston, Indiana. Why <laughs> there in a book about the global impact of the Mex the Mexican Revolution? <laughs> sure. Well, each chapter in this book is named after the making of something. There's how to make a university, how to make a living, how to make love, how to make a dress. But the introduction is called How to Make a Rope. Mm -hmm. And in that chapter, I tell the story of the making of uh, late 19th and early 20th century lynch rope. Uh, I, I, I trace back the strands, uh, the composite strands that made up lynch ropes in the early uh, in this period. Some strands uh, came from the Philippines. It was a fiber called abaca um, or manila. Some strands came from uh, Jim Crow sharecropping regimes. They were made of cotton or hemp. Uh, and some strands came from, from southern Mexico, uh, the southernmost state of the Yucatan, where indigenous uh, Huastec and Yaqui people, uh, as well as a host of indebted uh, people from Cuba, uh, Spain, Korea and China, uh, you know, all uh, labored to produce henequen or sisal. So I think there's an extraordinary way uh, that we can tell the story of the kind of world united in struggle through the commodity of the rope. But at the same time, I unbraid those strains of uh, those strands of accumulation to be able to show how the world was also united in struggle. So I highlight in each of those places struggles against U.S. imperialism in the Philippines, struggles in Chicago at the, uh, you know, that produced what we know as the, the Haymarket uh, riot, where the reaper binder technology, the technology that that wove those strands into um, uh, in, into a, a rope like fiber, uh, you know, to struggles in Mexico. Um, I, I, I think that there's a really interesting way that we can imagine the world united together in a certain way through global capital, but by reading it backwards, by understanding different sites of struggle of how people opposed uh, the evolution of that system, we can think about internationalism uh, in a completely different way, one that has a unique relationship to the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, internationalism is a word that you use a lot in this book. Since it had an anti-colonial, anti-racist, peasant, feminist, and artistic character, would you say that the Mexican Revolution speaks more directly to issues we continue to address today? Well, uh, yes, <laughs> I would answer yes. Um, but I, I'm, I'm interested not simply in the Mexican Revolution itself. I'm really interested in the kind of strands of internationalism uh, uh, that arose in relationship to the Mexican Revolution. You know, strands that, as, as you mentioned, confronted uh, colonialism, confronted imperialism, confronted capitalism, uh, you know, and also incubated ways in which the uh, gendered social relations of capital were challenged. So, you know, the main uh, 
concept of the book is convergent spaces. So mm -hmm. I'm interested in these sites where, uh, you know, some of them in the book are, as you mentioned, art collectives of federal penitentiary, farm worker strikes, organizing efforts of unemployed workers. And I'm interested in how in each of these different sites, you can see how different radical traditions were compressed together. And in the process, people produced new articulations of struggle. Uh, and, and so there's a kind of unusual way, you know, in the tradition of social history, we think about how capital produces its own negations, often through unanticipated alliances. And so the book is an effort to trace some of those alliances related to the Mexican Revolution that certainly give us a sense of internationalism that's precisely relevant for today. And to stress that international aspect, you trace the paths of a wide range of people, including the Black American artist Elizabeth Catlett, the Indian anti-colonial activist M.N. Roy, who was the founder of both the Mexican and Indian Communist parties, the Mexican revolutionary leader Ricardo Flores Magón, Paul Shinsei Kochi, who was an Okinawan immigrant organizer in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and Soviet feminist diplomat and theoretician Alexandra Kolontai. Um, so were these activists all finding inspiration to some degree from the revolutionary Mexico? In different ways, you know, I'm interested in looking at Mexico as both a kind of, uh, you know, a site for revolution, a, a, a place that contradictorily housed, uh, you know, served as a refuge for uh, different revolutionaries, a place onto which people projected fantasies of revolution. So, you know, there's not one singular way in which people come to a revolutionary consciousness in relationship to revolutionary Mexico. But, you know, as I mentioned, there's a, you know, or as you mentioned, there's a wide range of characters from, uh, you know, who are situated in a wide variety of places who all have a certain proximity to uh, the Mexican Revolution, which is just to say, you know, revolutionary formations that preceded the Russian Revolution that I think inspired a whole other way of thinking about internationalism that I thought was really fascinating. And activists in the United States, you devote a number of pages to W.E.B. Du Bois. Absolutely. Du Bois is one of the key theorists for this book in any number of ways. It's from Du Bois that I think about this period as an era of what he calls the new imperialism, uh, you know, a, a new ascendancy of finance capital within which the U.S. occupies an increasingly hegemonic role. I take from Du Bois his materialist analysis of the color line, which really, you know, threads through every chapter, you know, and I take from Du Bois some really important insights about the role of political education and pedagogy and how we have to unlearn some of the uh, fettered history that prevents us from developing uh, global revolutionary uh, alliances. And then some people who I am unfamiliar with, Charles Stillman of Connecticut, who was known in Mexico as Don Carlos, uh, and you connect him to a border town that I was unfamiliar with, even though I've traveled <laughs> extensively through Mexico, a town called Baghdad. Does it even exist anymore? Baghdad does not exist anymore. It once upon a time existed at the southernmost tip of Texas and, as I say, connected uh, Texas to the global waterways of the, uh, you know, of, of the capitalist economy. Uh, you know, Texas was, or Baghdad, Texas, it, it also stuck out to me because of, you know, its present day namesake. But in uh, Baghdad, uh, Mexico, um, uh, U.S. financiers, particularly Charles Stillman, 
you know, were able to circumvent the Union blockade of the Confederate economy. So what do I mean by that? During the Civil War, the Union, uh, you know, prevented the Confederacy from exporting its major crop, which, of course, was cotton. So, uh, you know, under the machinations of some very crafty financiers, and yes, I, I, <laughs> I named Charles Stillman in Connecticut, uh, they were able to smuggle Confederate cotton into Mexico, uh, you know, under the name of a Mexican trading partner. They were able to, you know, hoist a, a Mexican flag over uh, the ships and ditch, discharge that Confederate cotton for sale on the global economy as if it was Mexican cotton. And through these kind of machinations, Stillman became one of the uh, wealthiest uh, global investors and his son, James Stillman, went on to become um, the, the wealthiest person in the world and the president of what would become Citibank. Wow. Uh, is the Still Stillman family still prominent in Connecticut where you live? <laughs> huh? If I have, I haven't run into them yet. <laughs> you haven't bumped into any Stillmans recently. Not recently. No. Is it? possible to address Mexico as a single entity? You don't address this in your book, but uh, today it come, uh, comes across as a mix of pre-Columbian indigenous peoples like the Mayans, the Mixtecs, the Zapotecs, the Aztecs, along with the descendants of the Spanish colonialists, former African slaves, and also quite a few U.S. expats. Yeah, absolutely. Uh you know, I mean, there are people uh, far more uh, better situated than me to talk about how to think about Mexico, you know, in all its complexity and creativity and diversity and the multiple traditions within it. But I do think you're right to just note that, you know, one of the challenges of writing about Mexico and particularly the Mexican Revolution is to kind of escape a way in which people in the U.S. imagine the country and imagine that revolution as, uh, you know, a singular contained entity, one that, you know, we have to say is is so charged by the reactionary rhetoric of politicians in the U.S. today. You know, I mean, uh, there's so much to be said about the history and politics of Mexico and how it actually you know, is is constitutive of the history and political economy of the United States that I think we really miss in just some of the, you know, dreadful uh, political language in, through which it's talked about today. Were the Mayans and the Aztecs allies in the Mexican Revolution? Because uh, they even speak different languages, at least the, the indigenous people do, although Spanish, of course, is the language of Mexico. Well, maybe a way to answer that question is, uh, you know, a number of historians of the Mexican Revolution have either uh, promoted or challenged the idea that the multiple struggles for autonomy that happened within the boundaries of the country all coalesced into one singular uh, Mexican Revolution. There were a lot of competing agendas. The ones that I think we're most familiar with are, you know, uh, Pancho Villa's Northern Division, uh, you know, against local art oligarchy, U.S. imperialism and landed interests in Mexico, people like Emiliano Zapata, who led peasant armies in the south of the country. But there were another a, a number of other coterminous struggles that happened, uh, you know, a frustrated middle class that didn't see themselves represented and wanted to oust a long term uh, dictator named Porfirio Diaz, who ruled for over three decades. And there were also clashes uh, among indigenous groups in different parts of the country who had long been fighting for their autonomy, first from Spanish colonialism and subsequently from the modern Mexican state. So all these things are happening simultaneously 
simultaneously. Uh, and so, you know, some historians say we should look, you know, regionally, specifically at each of these struggles before pronouncing them all one singular revolution. I think that there's something very important about thinking about the revolution. And as I mentioned, you know, uh, thinking about how it offers us a different trajectory to think about radical internationalism and also to think about a, a different way of imagining struggles for the ascendance of U.S. hegemony. Emiliano Zapata was allied with Pancho Villa for a time. Uh, many older Americans learned about the Mexican Revolution when Marlon Brando played Zapata in the 1952 film Viva Zapata. And then Zapata was, was assassinated. Was he assassinated as part of that revolutionary spirit? Uh well, yeah, I appreciate the distinction. <laughs> Zapata was certainly more than Marlon Brando's <laughs> ridiculous yes. characterization of him in the film. And yes, Zapata was killed in the process of uh, a struggle in the Mexican Revolution. Um, I, I did just want to add, too, that, you know, there's a way in which we sometimes overlook how indigenous traditions of resistance informed what we would define as, you know, like modern political theories, particularly of revolution. One of the figures I focus on in the book is Ricardo Flores Magón, who was a major, you know, theorist, organizer and agitator and journalist of the Mexican Revolution. He was from the southern state of Oaxaca uh, and traced his lineage to uh, indigenous Zapotec traditions there. And a lot of his uh, theories about uh, anarchism in particular, he always said were interwoven with the way he understood the indigenous traditions in which he was raised. And so, you know, there's, I think, a, a convergence of revolutionary thought, you know, that both comes from anti-colonial struggles within the Western hemisphere, that comes from radical thought, you know, that circulated from the French Revolution, you know, to like English radical theories of anti-capitalism. Uh, but that also converged with uh, traditions within Mexico, particularly indigenous traditions. And so the convergences that I'm thinking about in the book, you know, are also happening within the country in a global way that I think sometimes we overlook. Well, Zapata and Villa were two radicals who lost. Um, how are they viewed in Mexico today? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think uh, there is a long history of uh, Villa and Zapata being heralded as heroes, as social heroes, as outlaws, you know, and there are very interesting ways in which they have been conscripted into the national mythology in the same way that the Mexican Revolution has itself been conscripted into the national mythology. So, uh, I know you keep asking questions about Vien Zapata and I keep responding with answers about Ricardo Flores Magón, but let me do it again. This year is the 100th anniversary. Well, people of recognize Zapata's name, <laughs> but they don't recognize Marón's name. Oh my God, I see. Uh, well, Ricardo Flores Magón, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, I think in Mexico is mm. uh, uh, solidly understood uh, in relationship to the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, I mentioned him the, at the beginning, actually. Yes, as uh, he's certainly one of the key heroes. And I, I mention it again because this year is actually the 100th anniversary of his death. And the Mexican mm. government has declared it the year of Ricardo Flores Magón. Huh. And what, what's really interesting about that is, you know, the Mexican Mexican government right now is undergoing a number of scandals 
one of which is the revelation that 43 missing and murdered students from Ayotzinapa, uh, the government was actually complicit in their murder and their disappearances. And the, their fellow students and the parents of those students have organized under a committee that's called the Ricardo Flores Magón Committee. And so there's a really interesting way in which the iconography of the state, the revolutionary iconography of the state, is confronting the struggles from below, the kind of living memory of the Mexican Revolution and the radical currents uh, in this confrontation that I think is very interesting. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Christina Heatherton. Her book, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution, is published by University of California Press. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Wasn't the Mexican Revolution actually an extended sequence of armed regional conflicts in Mexico from approximately 1910 to 1920? Um, Was it a civil war in some level? Definitely, uh, you know, definitely a, a, a civil war on in some level. As I mentioned, there's a number of competing regional interests. Um, you know, my interest in this book. Wait, is wait not can so we call it a, a, a war, a left-right war, or were, would that uh, be modernizing it too much? I I think that that might be modernizing it a little bit. You know, as I mentioned, I think that they're, you know, they're quite disparate struggles that are all kind of roughly united under the the term Mexican Revolution. You know, this book isn't so much a history of the revolution itself, but as I describe in the title that, you know, I'm thinking about the era of the Mexican Revolution. I'm thinking about how we can understand how the conditions that led up to the Mexican Revolution were actually quite generalizable in the world, you know, in this period that Du Bois describes as the era of the new imperialism. So, you know, uh, historians like John Titino have pointed out that, you know, the the uh, the way in which Mexico was pulled into the frenzy of modern finance, the mass dispossession that resulted the uh, you know exploitation of a of a growing industrial uh, proletariat, the way in which modernization enabled greater state repression, you know these were certainly things that led uh, to the explosion of revolution in Mexico, but they were not unique conditions to Mexico uh, alone. In fact, we can think about how a number of countries were pulled into the thrall of modern finance in the same period and how those same conditions produced uh, any number of dispossessed people, uh, but also a number of rebels. I'm interested in tracing how those people came to be thrown together in unplanned assemblages, how they found affinity with one another. Uh, how in some places they organized, how they combined radical traditions and imagine new ways of being together. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think the Mexican Revolution offers a way into those conversations to think about internationalism differently. And, and that's what I'm trying to do with the book. Well, the reason I mentioned left right is because John Reed reported on what was happening in Mexico for Metropolitan Magazine before he went to Russia to cover the revolution and write 10 days that shook the world. <laughs> right. Well, people forget this. You know, uh, John Reed, who, of course, was uh, most famous for writing 10 days that shook the world. 
the you know his first book was written during the Mexican Revolution. It was called Insurgent Mexico. It was a collection and elaboration of the articles that he wrote for Metropolitan Magazine. And as I talk about in the book, you know, he also spent a, a lot of time writing short stories about what he saw there. Uh, Read like a number of radicals in his uh, you know milieu were somewhat enchanted by how they understood the revolution. Reed was fascinated by how he interpreted Zapata's uh, uh, revolutionary plan. It resonated for him, the, the ideas of land redistribution and kind of radical democracy from below were very akin to the, uh, you know, the, the socialism that Reed and his comrades in the U.S. Uh, imagined. And so, uh, you know, I think for figures in the U.S., in, including Reed, there's an extraordinary way in which, as I mentioned, you know, like revolution, uh, Mexico is both a place of revolution. It's also a place where a number of revolutionary fantasies are projected. So Reed goes down, you know, this is for anybody who only knows John Reed through the, you know, the movie Reds. <laughs> there's a, a, a little brief scene where Reed's uh, in Mexico during the revolution, uh, you know, and he goes down, I, I think, expecting to be, you know, he's a young man. He's quite enchanted with what he thinks are the possibilities there. He he doesn't end up, he's not able to secure an audience uh, with Zapata and instead has to embed himself with Pancho Villa in the north. And what I find so interesting in his short stories are the way in which he confronts this really sobering reality of, you know, he, he's he's both somewhat taken by the dreams of the Mexican people that he encounters the Mexican soldiers fighting under Villa, but he is appalled by the, uh, you know, people from the U S that he's meeting in Mexico, these fortune hunters, you know, people who might be familiar with Humphrey Bogart in the, um, Oh gosh, what's the name of the movie, the treasure of the Sierra Madre, mm -hmm. uh, you know, are, are familiar with this archetype of the, you know, the, the, the gun for hire, the fortune hunter. And Reed encounters a number of people who, you know, even though they're the same age as him, they have come from similar backgrounds. They have not chosen to encounter Mexico as a place of revolutionary hope and possibility. They see it instead as a place, you know, to make a quick buck, to make a fortune, a place in which, uh, you know, they might be able to become, you know, uh, the the small millionaires uh, in ways that they could not, they they don't imagine they could do in the U.S. And Reed writes really thoughtfully about, you know, these what he calls kind of pathetic and lonely figures throughout Mexico. But he's fascinated by the dreams that drive them. And so in the book, you know, I talk a little bit about these short stories, but I connect them to what Du Bois is talking about is the subjectivity of a new imperialism, the sense that the way that the U.S. becomes hegemonic in this period is by defining the specific uh, fantasies of financiers in the general interest, you know, and so there's a way in which these, uh, you know, everyday fortune hunters uh, are enacting a kind of subjectivity of imperialism in the period. Wasn't there a long history of tension between Mexicans and uh, people from the United States? Remember the Alamo? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, this book, uh, you know, in, in some ways begins in 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, at the aftermath of the uh, U.S.-Mexico War or what we call here the Mexican-American War. 
you know, and in the aftermath of that uh, war, you know, Mexico lost uh, over a third of its territory, you know, present day states of California, Arizona, etc. And before that, yes, the struggle for the Alamo, there was, uh, you know, after Mexico's independence from Spain in 1821, there was nothing but speculation, uh, you know, uh, efforts of the US government and, and individual financiers to, you know, encroach into Mexico. This became formalized uh, with the annexation in 1848. But I'm really interested in what happens after the fact, too. You know, after that formal territorial seizure, a number of U.S. investors are in Mexico, um, uh, uh, you know, exchanging, uh, purchasing Mexican state bonds in exchange for land. There's a form of financial speculation that happens in Mexico in the later 19th century that, uh, you know, as some uh, figures like Gilbert Gonzalez have talked about as a secondary annexation. But it takes a different form. Instead of the U.S., you know, just simply seizing territory, putting its own, you know, uh, creating new states, the, the kind of rule by finance that develops in Mexico is much more subtle. Uh, you know, Ricardo Flores Magón writes in 1904, soon it won't be long until every bank, every, uh, you know, courthouse, everything is, nothing can be done without the permission of Del Tío Samuel, of Uncle Sam. So, you know, there is a form of indirect rule that develops that's, uh, you know, determined by finance, a kind of indirect control over banks, courthouses, laws, where the where the U.S. flag is never raised, but the threat of U.S. invasion is, you know, uh, always present. And this, I say, prefigures the forms of rule that come to develop over the 20th century. And although Mexican food is very popular throughout much of the United States, I don't know how many people have noticed that there is an outlet for the Culinary Institute of America very close to the Alamo. Did I you had know no that? Idea. I had no yeah, idea. No, yes, it's, uh, I saw CIA. I thought, what's going on here? <laughs> the other CIA. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, getting back to John Reed and his reports, um, how is that all playing back in the United States? Were Americans taking sides, or did this all just seem like some kind of foreign thing? It might as well be in in Russia or in in Africa. There's uh, extraordinary and extraordinarily overlooked forms of solidarity that are developing in the United States. So the story that I tell at the beginning with the rope, Hennekin production. Uh, in Yucatan is something that uh, U.S. authors uh, like uh, Kenneth Turner are writing about, you know, that are circulating in a number of socialist magazines, uh, you know, famously in his book, Barbarous Mexico. So, you know, I mean, Barbarous Mexico tells you where that book is headed, doesn't it? it, it right. Well, that that that's how they characterize the the kind of labor regimes uh, where they see, uh, you know, as, as Turner talks about, he describes indigenous people as being, uh, you know, suffering essentially under slavery. Uh, and, you know, uh, something that's really interesting is by the early 20th century, um, McCormick Harvesting Company, which, which comes to be called International Harvester, comes to own some 99.8% of the whole Hennequin trade that's being produced there. Uh, and the, the, the conditions um, 
the you know barbarous conditions are so well known in the U.S. that actually International Harvester has to address them in one of its company magazines. And so it writes, there is nothing in the nature of slavery in the Yucatan. Every working man is treated fairly and gets his pay, you know, on time. And what's so ironic about this is it's, you know, it's McCormick, you know, the, the main company behind International Harvester, which had initially produced the Haymarket riot. Uh, you know, it was uh, workers at the plant in Chicago that produced the machinery that took Mexican hennequin and sisal, uh, you know, and bound it into twine so that hay in the Midwest could be bundled and sold for the market, right? That's why it's called hay market. Uh, and it was because of the wretched conditions in Chicago that those workers organized with the Knights of Labor to, uh, you know, for a general strike, um, which, you know, is what's commemorated in May Day, uh, you know, and and the struggle of workers, uh, you know, to fight for an eight hour day, to fight for their rights, to fight against exploitation, uh, you know, um, it, 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 I mean, not to rehearse the entire history, but, you know, there are strikers that are killed by the police in response. Demonstrators pour into Haymarket Square. You know, there's a bomb goes off. The police fire into the crowd. You know, it leaves a number of people dead. And organizers are, uh, you know, the, the like lead organizers are persecuted. People who the state had been keeping their eye on for a long time. Um, and uh, they're subsequently hung. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is how, uh, you know, May Day uh, is celebrated in Mexico as the Day of the Martyrs of Chicago. Uh -huh. I tell the story about how uh, uh, Mary Mother Jones, you know, one of our foremost labor organizers, goes on a labor de delegation in 1921 in Mexico, you know, and is meeting with all these Mexican workers. And all of a sudden they come out with this banner to the Martyrs of Chicago and she describes this as she describes being so moved. She says in her long storied life of labor organizing, she had never witnessed the kind of international solidarity that she felt from those Mexican workers there. So, you know, I think that there's a, a really interesting story about how uh, I mean, this is an example of the kind of internationalism that I'm talking about in relationship to the Mexican Revolution. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Christina Heatherton. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Arise, Global Radicalization in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or, or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org or 212 209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Christina Heatherton, 
whose book is published by the University of California Press. She is Elting Associate Professor of American Studies and Human Rights at Trinity College, Connecticut, and co-editor of Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter. Um, I, I don't know if you see uh, those two stories as being intertwined in any way, but I'm wondering about some of the other things that happened during the period of the Mexican Revolution, such as World War I and then the Soviet Revolution. Uh, is it just a coincidence that World War I took place during this period? Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm not in the habit of diagnosing historical coincidences, but, uh, you know, the period of World War I and the Russian Revolution obviously figure, you know, uh, quite large in the book. Uh, now, the the Russians know. were very aware of what was going on in Mexico well, definitely. You know, I mean, one 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 I think uh, really fascinating story that I found was, as you mentioned, M.N. Roy, who, uh, you know, was uh, from India. He was somebody mm -hmm. who was a key organizer in struggles against British colonialism uh, in India uh, in the kind of tumult of the First World War. He, like a lot of radicals, ended up uh, going to Mexico, you know, in an unanticipated way for shelter. And I tell the story of how in 1917, um, you know, Roy describes being in revolutionary Mexico as the land of my rebirth. And he uh, experiences this phenomenal transformation. What happens is while he's there, he has some comrades that are, are working for different newspapers and they ask him, they say, you know, can you write some articles to explain to the Mexican people what the struggle of uh, what the, what the Indian struggle against British colonialism is. Tell them about, you know, your work and what you're fighting for. And he says in his memoirs that uh, in the process of trying to describe that relationship to Mexican people, he says it's like carrying coal to Newcastle, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and he, you know, I mean, there's some very thoughtful ways which he has to reflect on a struggle that he imagined was unique to, you know, uh, Indian anti-colonial resistance, uh, you know. But, but he, he in the case of Mexico, it's anti, first it's against Spain and later it's, it's against the United States. Well, against Spain, against French forces, against mm. British forces, against the U.S. I mean, there's a lot of different countries that want a piece of Mexico. So, you know, the 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 kind of foreign exploit, uh, the, the incursions of foreign capital and the way in which Mexican people understand that their, you know, their land and their liberty is not their own is something really broadly felt. So Roy comes to see how, you know, the, there's a great resonance between these struggles. And he describes how he transformed in revolutionary Mexico from a diehard nationalist to an internationalist. Uh, and I mentioned this in relationship to your question because it's Roy, you know, from India who becomes one of the founding members of the Mexican Communist Party. Uh, he famously goes to the Comintern and debates Lenin on what's called the national and colonial question. And what's fascinating is when you read the text, you can see that a lot of the arguments that he's making about the significance of colonial countries, you know, their role in a global revolutionary struggle, these are prefigured in the articles that he's writing in Mexico. Mexico about uh, the Indian struggle against colonialism. So I think this is a really beautiful example of the kind of, you know, underappreciated, uh, you know, what Robin D.G. Kelly calls other streams of internationalism that, uh, you know, we often miss in our histories of it. Do we see any influence of the Mexican Revolution in the Soviet Revolution? Was it sure. referred to? 
Well, you know that uh, I mean there are very interesting ways because in we're, we're talking about the Mexican Revolution was not communist in any way, or was there an inclination at at one time or another? There, I mean, you know, at the International Institute for Social History in Amsterdam, I was able to go through a number of uh, papers of different radicals, uh, you know, some who were associated with the Comintern who were looking, uh, you know, at prospects in Mexico. I mean, people thought that this would be the beachhead from which a global revolution in the Western Hemisphere, uh, you know, would be launched. Uh, you know, some like Senkatiyama, who was a Japanese uh, radical, someone who was very beloved, particularly by black radicals in the U.S. because of his unsparing hatred for white supremacy. You know, he 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 passed through uh, Mexico and also thought that it was a incredible site for the uh, potential of, you know, global revolution. There are scholars like Daniela Spencer in Mexico who have really done the work to look at the common turn records uh, and their relationship to the Mexican Revolution. Margaret Stevens has also written a really important study that thinks about specifically the common turn and currents of communism uh, in Mexico in the period. So, you know, for people that are interested in those questions, I would certainly refer them to those texts. And then there were also former slaves in Mexico, people who had been brought from, from Africa. Did they play a part in all of this? Well, yes. Uh, you know, I mean, I think in, to your earlier question about what constitutes Mexico and how do we sometimes miss the like extraordinary diversity of people there. I mean, there, uh, Herman Bennett has written some very important texts about, uh, you know, how Afro-Mexicans, how the African diaspora in Mexico is something that severely, you know, uh, continues to be overlooked uh, and, and rediscovered. So, uh, you know, I mean, it, there's certainly ways throughout, uh, you know, both the Mexican Revolution and the long history of anti-colonial revolts where, uh, you know, for example, uh, some of the maroon communities that develop in Veracruz in response to some of the earliest settlement of Spanish colonizers become critical sites, mm. uh, you know, of struggle ag against colonialism, um, you know, for centuries. What role did the Catholic Church play in the conflict? Well, you know, the uh, there's a number of streams uh, in the Mexican Revolution that were profoundly anti, you know, they were against the church. Uh, so, you know, in one of the chapters, I talk about Alexandra Kalantai, who, uh, you know, was briefly the... Um, uh, she was the ambassador from the Soviet Union to Mexico in a short period, the end of 1926 into 1927. Um, and so she's there in the early rumblings of the Cristero rebellions. So there's both a lot of efforts on behalf of uh, revolutionaries to expropriate the land and power of the church in Mexico. People, you know, are understanding this as part of, you know, the uh, vestiges of colonial power. There's great resentment for, you know, the power of the church, its iconography. And there's also a lot of people that are quite wedded to the church. And there are some reactionary forces that try to mobilize that, you know, as a, a, a you know, as a, as a way to, uh, 
interrupt some of these revolutionary fractions. And I, I talk about this in relationship to Kalantai because I think there's some really interesting ways in which you can think about the coterminous nature of a, you know, the, the Bolshevik revolution and the Mexican revolution happening at the same time. So, you know, Kalantai, uh, was, um, the czar of, uh, you know, what we might call social welfare, uh, in the Soviet Union, she was one of the first women who served at a high level of a, you know, uh, as a state official. Um, and so part of her mandate was trying to figure out how do you make a society run after civil war, uh, and after revolution. And so, you know, some of the things that she had to figure out was what do you do with all the children who have been abandoned? What do you do with all the people who've been disabled and disfigured by war? What do you do, uh, you know, with any number of, uh, like members of society who are just not protected you know, by the state as it previously existed under the Tsarist regime? And like, what would it look like differently under a revolutionary regime? And I mention all of this because she had some really interesting ideas. You know, she wanted to transform a, a, a really hateful orphanage where, uh, you know, working class women would have to send their illegitimate children. She wanted to change it into a, what she called a palace of motherhood, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, where, where, where working class women would be celebrated, where their pregnancy would be celebrated, where their children came into the world with love and care. Uh, and she also wanted to uh, create a space for injured and maimed and disabled uh, people, a lot of them former soldiers. And the space that she had uh, imagined uh, taking was a monastery. And, you know, it, it's a great scandal in her career in the Soviet Union that um, this caused tremendous pushback locally. Uh, you know, there was a big kind of rebellion against uh, what people imagine as this effort to expropriate the property of the church in Russia. And, you know, it, it, it like to make matters worse, she later married one of the, you know, soldiers who was a part of this. And he was a man who was younger than her. So she comes to Mexico and is in the middle of another revolution and sees this kind of process of state building, the difficulty of it. Right. How do you kind of pair these, uh, you know, I, I don't want to call them utopian, but these, you know, ideas of how the world could be, how it could be organized, and and how do you actually enact that on the ground, you know, in uh, in within the, you know, like slim resources that you have available to you, and how do you have to, you know, confront uh, the, the ways that people had been socialized in another order? In Mexico, as in Russia, there's a lot of forces that are very much tied to the church, even as a state is evolving in a way that is trying to uh, diminish its its authority and power. So, you know, I think this stage is a really interesting confrontation, not just between Kalantai, the person, but, you know, between these two revolutionary movements that are happening at the same time. Yeah, you write a lot about Kalantai in the book, but I was wondering about the role of women in the Mexican Revolution, which hasn't been an important aspect of the official history. Well, I mean, there's incredible stories uh, that people have written, uh, you know, about soldaderas, uh, you know, women in the Mexican Revolution who performed any number of unacknowledged roles, uh, you know, traveling with revolutionary, uh, you know, uh, different 
soldiers uh, over uh, rails and, uh, you know, participating in revolutionary struggles in ways that we're kind of just coming to understand. Um, but I think the question of gender uh, in the, you know, both in the Mexican Revolution and in relationship to some of the internationalist streams that I'm talking about is, uh, you know, a really critical part. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I turned to Kalantai so much is because, as you mentioned, you know, she wasn't just a diplomat. She was also a theorist. Uh, and she was insistent that unless a revolution could uh, upend what we would call, you know, heteropatriarchal norms, un unless it could really uh, reconfigure gender relations and the way in which sexuality was imagined, you know, uh, what some people have described as a kind of propertied love. If a revolution couldn't transform those things, it could not be revolutionary. So there's very interesting ways in which she's talking to feminists in Mexico. She's talking to women organizers in Mexico during the revolution. But there are also really interesting ways in which those ideas, you know, are, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're floating beyond her. So in Leavenworth Penitentiary, you know, where I talk about uh, in, in one of my chapters is this really interesting detail that Enrique Flores Magón, uh, you know, an, another Mexican revolutionary, actually has a copy of a book uh, in which uh, Alexander Kalanta's ideas, you know, are spelled out. And when you open the book, uh, you see that there's an inscription that says, please return this book as soon as possible, because there's a lot of people waiting to read it. So don't write in its pages. And you get a sense of like, well, why were all of these male radical prisoners during the First World War reading Alexander Kalantai? And why would they have been so moved by her ideas of gender and revolution? There were male uh, politicians who got involved. Venusiano uh, Carranza pushed for the rights of women, to gain the support of women. Um, before we go on, I should uh, alert our listeners to the fact that this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. And my guest is Christina Heatherton, whose new book, published by the University of California Press, is called Arise! Exclamation point, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution. Um, so what happened? How much uh, did foreign powers with economic and strategic interests in Mexico figure in the outcome and the power struggles over the years? Um, well, I mean, specific to the Mexican Revolution, you know, there's... Um, there's really important and overlooked ways in which the ascendancy of U.S. hegemony, I think, is deeply tied to Mexico. And, you know, there's another way to think about the Mexican Revolution when you think about it from that vantage point. Well, even point. now, it, if you go to Mexico, you find an awful lot of U.S. ownership there. Absolutely. Well, by the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution, there a quarter of all U.S. investment lay in Mexico. U.S. financiers owned over 80 percent of Mexican mineral rights. In fact, they own more of Mexico's surface than Mexico's entities. I'm really interested in the fact that the very first time the U.S. became a creditor nation was in Mexico. And so I argue in the book that it was in Mexico the U.S. developed new forms of, as I mentioned before, indirect rule, a kind of new modality of imperialism, not through direct 
direct territorial seizure of governance, but a kind of indirect rule through finance and threatened militarism that portends uh, the way U.S. hegemony would unfold throughout the 20th century. So I say in and, Mexico— and, wait, in, and did that yeah. matter whether it was a Republican or—well, yeah, it was Republicans and Democrats at that time already. Did it matter who was in office? No. Because <laughs> we're talking about Wood, Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt, and who else? Uh, yeah, I mean, this, as always, is a bipartisan effort, uh, you know, and, and sometimes this shifted. Sometimes there was a rhetoric that was more radical than what was practiced on the ground. But I think then is now, you know, like we in the U.S. Uh, uh, could always improve our ability to understand politics as not simply domestic issues, which, you know, we can sometimes be blinded by the ferocity of them. But, you know, it's important to always think about the bipartisan ways in which this, you know, this country has exerted hegemony mm -hmm. uh, ar ar around the world. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of this was, uh, uh, you know, we, we can see how a lot of this formed in re in the U.S.'s early relationships to Mexico. But, but even in modern politics, racism uh, became a factor in uh, the way uh, Donald Trump was talking about uh, immigration from Mexico um, has race, has the fact that many Americans consider themselves superior to Mexican played a, a role in the way the United States has dealt with Mexico. Absolutely, I mean, I I think uh, you know people like Tomas. Uh, 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 oh goodness, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, but racial fault lines, Amigur. Uh, you know, uh, and and others have written really powerfully about how. Uh, you know, there's been a co-terminous relationship of racist tropes of Mexican people that has, uh, you know, existed, been in existence as long as there has been interest in Mexican land, labor and resources, uh, you know. And so I, I think there's a really interesting way in which sometimes in the history of the United States, we talk a lot about U.S. state formation, and there's this kind of idea that the U.S. was always going to become what it eventually became. And sometimes that can blind us to the kind of contingencies of history, the fact that, you know, nothing was ever a given. There were anti-colonial struggles. There were anti-imperial struggles where things could have happened in a different way. Uh, you know, but there are ways in which when we think about the history of Mexico, you know, we don't afford the country the same kind of inevitability. Uh, and there's, you know, I, I think there continues to be ways in which we imagine the country as being subordinate to U.S. power and interests when, you know, you know, I was just speaking to some organizers in Mexico. I think the ways in which particularly Mexican feminist organizers that have been fighting, uh, particularly for bodily autonomy, are really leading the way, particularly for uh, feminists in this country to try to rebut some of the, you know, backwards and, uh, for, you know, just nasty new policies being enacted in this country. Is the Mexican uh, con Constitution from 1917 still in play? Uh, is it a legacy of the revolution? Well, you know, I mentioned Ricardo Flores Magón before, and, uh, you know, one of there's an interesting detail that this anarchist who so hated the state, uh, you know, was uh, and refused any assistance from the state, even as he was dying, you know, his body was brought back from uh, from from Kansas, where he died, 
uh, into Mexico. And uh, subsequently, in the mid 20th century, it was disinterred and reburied in the rotunda of illustrious persons. So there's ways in which there, you know, the, the history of the Mexican Revolution has been unevenly, some people say frozen, but consecrated in the state. Uh, and so, you know, that includes some of the very radical provisions of the Mexican 1917 Constitution, which, you know, for their time, uh, you know, proved to be one of the most radical documents, uh, you know, particularly in the, you know, among any modern constitution for its proposed, uh, you know, radical proposals for land redistribution, worker protection, nationalization of resources. Um, and as we can see, I mean, you know, as we know from our own constitution, there's, you know, the, the policies enshrined within it often require constant social struggles in order to affect uh, what's promised in them. And, and this is also true in Mexico. So even though there are things that are enshrined in the Constitution, you know, the, uh, the, the political party that develops after the Mexican Revolution, the PRI, which is, you know, the institutional party of the revolution, ruled the country for decades up until quite recently. Uh, and so, you know, revolutions, as I talk about in the book, are not simply like cut and dry events where, you know, they occur and then everything changes for the better afterwards. These are living traditions, uh, you know, that always have the contingency of going one way or the other. We're, if we're, we want pretty, much them a, we're pretty much out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> I did want to ask you one other question, if you can give me a, a brief answer. Sure. Aren't there plans to make the stories you tell here into a multi-episode documentary series? <laughs> uh, you know, someone's putting that lie on the internet, and I oh. wholeheartedly endorse it. <laughs> okay, great. Meanwhile, we have the book, uh, Arise Global Radicalism in the Era of Mexican Revolution, published by the University of California Press. Christina Heatherton, thank you so much for being a wonderful guest. Thank you so much, Leonard. It's been a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. You can check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. BAI has been facing a major economic crisis, so we've been asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950 because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth con content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more during this show will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Arise, Global Radicalism in the Era of the Mexican Revolution by Christina Heatherton. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. Also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for 10 15 20 however many dollars a month you can afford. But either way, it's important to help keep this station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored.
concert alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Thursday when my guest will be Sam Roberts discussing his new book, The New Yorkers. We'll see you then.